Section 4 of the Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Fairy Book by Dinah Maria Mulock. The Adventures of John Dietrich, Part 1. There once lived in Rambin, a town near the Baltic Sea, an honest, industrious man named James Dietrich. He had several children, all of a good disposition, especially the youngest, whose name was John. John Dietrich was a handsome, smart boy, diligent at school and obedient at home. His great passion was for hearing stories and whenever he met anyone who was well stored with such, he never let him go till he had heard them all. When John was about eight years old, he was sent to spend a summer with his uncle, a farmer in Ronenkirchen. Here he had to keep cows with other boys, and they used to drive them to graze about the Nine Hills, where an old cowherd, one Klaus Starkvolt, frequently came to join the lads, and then they would sit down all together and tell stories. Consequently, Klaus became John's best friend, for he knew stories without end. He could tell all about the Nine Hills and the underground folk who inhabited them, how the giants disappeared from the country, and the dwarfs or little people came in their stead. These tales John swallowed so eagerly that he thought of nothing else, and was forever talking of golden cups and crowns and glass shoes and pockets full of ducats and gold rings and diamond coronets and snow-white brides and the like. Old Klaus used often to shake his head at him and say, "'John, John, what are you about?' The spade and scythe will be your scepter and crown, and your bride will wear a garland of rosemary and a gown of striped drill. Still, John almost longed to get into the Nine Hills, for Klaus had told him that anyone who by luck or cunning should get the cap of one of the little people might go down with safety, and instead of becoming their slave, he would be their master. The fairy whose cap he got would be his servant and obey all his commands. Midsummer Eve, when the days are longest and the nights shortest, was now come. In the village of Rambin, old and young kept the holiday, had all sorts of plays and told all kinds of stories. John, who knew that this season was the time for all fairy people to come abroad, could now no longer contain himself, but the day after the festival he slipped away to the Nine Hills, and when it grew dark laid himself down on the top of the highest of them, which Klaus had told him was the principal dancing ground of the underground people. John lay there quite still from ten till twelve at night. At last it struck twelve. Immediately there was a ringing and a singing in the hills, and then a whispering and a lisping and a whiz and a buzz all about him, 
for the little people were now come out, some whirling round and round in the dance, and others sporting and tumbling about in the moonshine, and playing a thousand merry pranks. He felt a secret dread creep over him at this whispering and buzzing, for he could see nothing of them, as the caps they wore made them invisible. But he lay quite still, with his face in the grass and his eyes fast shut, snoring a little just as if he was asleep. Yet now and then he ventured to open his eyes a little and peep out, but not the slightest trace of them could he see, though it was bright moonlight. It was not long before three of the underground people came jumping up to where he was lying, but they took no heed of him and flung their brown caps up into the air and caught them from one another. At length one snatched the cap out of the hand of another and flung it away. It flew direct and fell upon John's head. He could feel, though he could not see it, and the moment he did feel it, he caught hold of it. Starting up, he swung it about for joy and made the little silver bell of it tingle, then set it upon his head, and, oh, wonderful to relate, that instant he saw the countless and merry swarm of the little people. The three little men came slyly up to him and thought by their nimbleness to get back the cap, but he held his prize fast and they saw clearly that nothing was to be done in this way with him, for in size and strength John was a giant in comparison of these little fellows, who hardly reached his knee. The owner of the cap now came up very humbly to the finder and begged in as supplicating a tone as if his life depended upon it that he would give him back his cap. No, said John, you sly little rogue, you'll get the cap no more. That's not the sort of thing. I should be in a nice perplexity if I had not something of yours. Now you have no power over me, but must do what I please. And I will go down with you, and see how you live below, and you shall be my servant. Nay, no grumbling, you know you must. And I know it too, just as well as you do for Klaus Starkvolt told it to me often and often. The little man made as if he had not heard or understood one word of all this. He began all his crying and whining over again, and wept and screamed and howled most piteously for his little cap. But John cut the matter short by saying to him, Have done. You are my servant, and I intend to make a trip with you. So the underground man gave up the point, especially as he well knew there was no remedy. John now flung away his old hat and put on the cap, and set it firmly on his head, lest it should slip or fly away, for all his power lay in it. He lost no time in trying its virtues, but commanded his new servant to fetch him food and drink. The servant ran away like the wind, and in a second was there again with bottles of wine and bread and rich fruits. So John ate and drank and looked on at the sports and the dancing of the little people, and it pleased him right well, 
and he behaved himself stoutly and wisely, as if he was a born master. When the cock had now crowed for the third time, and the little larks had made their first flutter in the sky, and the daybreak appeared in the slender white streaks in the east, then there was a whisper, hush, 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 through the bushes and flowers and trees, and the hills rang again and opened up, and the little men stole down and disappeared. John gave close attention to everything, and found that it was exactly as he had been told. And behold, on the top of the hill, where they had just been dancing, and which was now full of grass and flowers, as people see it by day, there rose of a sudden a small glass door. Whosoever wanted to go in stepped upon this. It opened, and he glided gently in, the glass closing again after him, and when they had all entered it, vanished, and there was no further trace of it to be seen. Those who descended through the glass door sank gently into a wide silver tun or barrel, which held them all, and could easily have harbored a thousand such little people. John and his man went down also, along with several others, all of whom screamed out and prayed him not to tread on them, for if his weight came on them they were dead men. He was, however, careful and acted in a very friendly way towards them. Several barrels of this kind went up and down after each other until all were in. They hung by long silver chains, which were drawn and guided from below. In his descent John was amazed at the wonderful brilliancy of the walls between which the ton glided down. They seemed all studded with pearls and diamonds, glittering and sparkling brightly, while below him he heard the most beautiful music tinkling at a distance, so that he did not know what he was about, and from excess of pleasure he fell fast asleep. He slept a long time, and when he awoke he found himself in the most beautiful bed that could be such as he had never seen in his father's or any other house. It was also the prettiest little chamber in the world, and his servant was beside him with a fan to keep away the flies and gnats. He had hardly opened his eyes when his little servant brought him a basin and a towel and held ready for him to put on the nicest new clothes of brown silk, most beautifully made and with these was a pair of new black shoes with red ribbons, such as John had never beheld in Rambin or in Rodenkirchen either. There were also there several pairs of glittering glass shoes, such as are only used on great occasions. John was, we may well suppose, delighted to have such clothes to wear, and he put them on joyfully. His servant then flew like lightning and returned with a fine breakfast of wine and milk and delicate white bread and fruits and such other things as little boys are fond of. He now perceived, every moment, more and more, that Klaus Starkvolt, the old cowherd, knew what he was talking about, for the splendor and magnificence here surpassed anything John had ever dreamt of. His servant, too, was the most obedient one possible. 
A nod or a sign was enough for him, for he was as wise as a bee, as all these little people are by nature. John's bedroom was all covered with emeralds and other precious stones, and in the ceiling was a diamond as big as a nine-pin bowl that gave light to the whole chamber. In this place they have neither sun nor moon nor stars to give them light, neither do they use lamps or candles of any kind, but they live in the midst of precious stones and have the purest of gold and silver in abundance from which they manage to obtain light both by day and by night, though indeed, properly speaking, as there is no sun here, there is no distinction of day and night, and they reckon only by weeks. They set the brightest and clearest precious stones in their dwellings, and the ways and passages leading under the ground and in the places where they have their large halls and their dances and feasts and the sparkle of these jewels makes a sort of silvery twilight, which is far more beautiful than common day. When John had finished his breakfast, his servant opened a little door in the wall, where was a closet with silver and gold cups and dishes and other vessels and baskets filled with ducats and boxes of jewels and precious stones. There were also charming pictures and the most delightful story-books he had seen in the whole course of his life. John spent the morning looking at those things, and when it was midday a bell rung, and his servant said, Will you dine alone, sir, or with the large company? With the large company, to be sure, replied John. So his servant led him out. John, however, saw nothing but solitary halls, lighted up with precious stones, and here and there little men and women who appeared to him to glide out of the clefts and fissures of the rocks. Wondering what it was the bells rang for, he said to his servant, But where is the company? And scarcely had he spoken when the hall they were in opened out to a great extent, and a canopy set with diamonds and precious stones was drawn over it. At the same moment he saw an immense throng of nicely dressed little men and women pouring in through several open doors. The floor opened in several places, and tables covered with the most beautiful ware and the most luscious meats and fruits and wines arranged themselves in rows, and the chairs arranged themselves along beside the tables, and then the men and women took their seats. The principal persons now came forward, bowed to John, and led him to their table, where they placed him among the most beautiful maidens, a distinction which pleased John well. The party, too, was very merry, for the underground people are extremely lively and cheerful, and can never stay long quiet. Then the most charming music sounded over their heads, and beautiful birds flying about sung sweetly. These were not real but artificial birds, which the little men make so ingeniously that they can fly about and sing like natural ones. The servants of both sexes, who waited at table, and handed about the gold cups and the silver and crystal baskets with fruit, were mortal children, 
whom some misfortune had thrown among the underground people, and who, having come down without securing any pledge, such as John's cap, had fallen into their power. These were differently clad from their masters. The boys and girls were dressed in snow-white coats and jackets, and wore glass shoes, so thin that their steps could never be heard, with blue caps on their heads and silver belts around their waists. John at first pitied them, seeing how they were forced to run about and wait on the little people. But as they looked cheerful and happy, and were handsomely dressed, and had such rosy cheeks, he said to himself, After all, they are not so badly off, and I was myself much worse when I had to be running after the cows and bullocks. To be sure, I am now a master here, and they are servants, but there is no help for it. Why were they so foolish as to let themselves be taken and not get some pledge beforehand? At any rate, the time must come when they shall be set at liberty, and they will certainly not be longer than fifty years here. With these thoughts he consoled himself, and sported and played away with his little playfellows, and ate and drank, and made his servant and the others tell him stories for he always liked to hear something strange and get to the bottom of everything. They sat at table about two hours. The principal person then rang a little bell, and the tables and chairs all vanished in a whiff, leaving the company standing on their feet. The birds now struck up a most lively air, and the little people began to dance, jumping and leaping and whirling round and round, as if the world were grown dizzy, and the pretty little girls that sat next John caught hold of him and whirled him about, and without making any resistance he danced with them for two good hours. Every afternoon, while he remained there, he used to do the same, and to the last hour of his life he always spoke of it with the greatest glee. When the music and dancing were over, it might be about four o'clock. The little people then disappeared and went each about their work or their pleasure. After supper, they sported and danced in the same way, and at midnight, especially on starlit nights, they slipped out of their hills to dance in the open air. John used then, like a good boy, to say his prayers and go to sleep, a duty he never neglected, either in the evening or in the morning. For the first week that John was in the glass hill, he only went from his chamber to the great hall and back again. After then, however, he began to walk about, making his servants show and explain everything to him. He found that there were here most beautiful walks, in which he might ramble along for miles in all directions, without ever finding an end of them. So immensely large was the hill that the little people lived in, and yet outwardly it seemed but a little hill, with a few bushes and trees growing on it. He also found meadows and lanes, islands and lakes, where the birds sang sweeter, and the flowers were more brilliant and fragrant than anything he had ever seen on earth. There was a breeze, and yet one did not feel the wind. 
It was quite clear and bright, but there was no heat. The waves were dashing, still there was no danger, and the most beautiful little barks and canoes came like white swans when one wanted to cross the water, and went backwards and forwards of their own accord. Whence all this came nobody knew, nor could his servant tell anything about it. These lovely meads and plains were, for the most part, all solitary. Few of the underground people were to be seen upon them, and those that were just glided across them as if in the greatest hurry. It very rarely happened that any one of them danced out here in the open air. Sometimes about three of them did so, at the most half a dozen. John never saw a greater number together. The meadows never seemed cheerful except when the earth children, who were kept as servants, were let out to walk. This, however, happened but twice a week, for they were mostly kept employed in the great hall and adjoining apartments or at school. For John soon found they had schools there also. He had been there about ten months when one day he saw something snow-white gliding into a rock and disappearing. What, said he to his servant, are there some of you too that wear white like the servants? He was informed that there were, but they were few in number and never appeared at the large tables or the dances, except once a year, on the birthday of the great hill king, who dwelt many thousand miles below in the great deep. These were the oldest amongst them, some being many thousand years old. They knew all things and could tell of the beginning of the world and were called the wise. They lived all alone and only left their chambers to instruct the underground children and the attendants of both sexes. John was greatly interested by this news and he determined to take advantage of it. So next morning he made his servant conduct him to the school and was so well pleased with it that he never missed a day. The scholars were taught reading, writing, and accounts to compose and relate histories and stories, and many elegant kinds of work, so that many came out of the hills very prudent and learned. The biggest and those of best capacity received instruction in natural science and uh, astronomy and in poetry and riddle-making, arts highly esteemed by the little people. John was very diligent and soon became a clever painter. He wrought, too, most ingeniously in gold and silver and stones, and in verse and riddle-making he had no fellow. John had spent many a happy year here without ever thinking of the upper world or of those he left behind so pleasantly passed the time. So many an agreeable playfellow had he among the children. End of section four. Reading by Malone.